1: It's been a long road
3: Getting from there to here It's been a long time But my time is finally here But I can feel the change in the right now Nothing's in my way
4: they're not gonna hold me down no more no they are not gonna hold me down cause i've got faith of the
3: heart
1: Hello, everyone. Hello this is Dr. Jess Armine coming to you from the Institute for Methylation and Bioindividualized Medicine here in southeastern Pennsylvania. I'd like to make, say good evening to Philadelphia and Chicago. I'd like to say good afternoon to California. I'd like to say good morning, Sydney, Australia. Good morning, Adelaide. Good afternoon to Perth, and a very early good morning to New Zealand. Because this is an international show, and everybody's listening. Tonight we have a great show for you, and I'm going to be mediating, probably uh, ducking, whatever. But uh, you'll know it's about menopause. I always make a couple of quick quick announcements, and then we can get right on to the show. First announcement is about the uh, seminar uh, for methylation and bioindividualized medicines being held January 17 and 18 in Philadelphia. Okay. Presently, you can still come to it via video streaming. Okay, we are going to be video streaming live, and I've got a couple of special, um, special things for you. By the way, if you video stream, you don't lose anything. You're still able to ask questions. You'll be able to interact with the instructors, and you can do it from your own home. Uh, it's a whole lot less money because you don't have to fly here. You don't have to eat. You don't have what well, you have to eat, but you don't. Have to eat it with us, okay. And to as a gift, we are having a holiday coupon where you can get $50 off the price of the seminar. And if when you sign up for the seminar, if you put in the word holiday, okay, in the promo box, you'll get $50 off. Big announcement again we have been awarded um, 2014. Category 1, CME credits, and we have 14 CEUs from various organizations. The Functional Diagnostic Nutrition Group, their organization has granted them 14 hours of continuing education units for our seminar. I'm excited. Do you know how difficult it is and what an honor it is to be able to to offer continuing medica- medical education to MDs, DOs, pharmacists, nurses, and the like? I'm impressed. I'm impressed. I'm, I know. I I'm impressed myself. Whatever. Okay. Like I said, tonight, we are going to be talking about menopause, and we have some special guests here. Uh, the first guest I want to introduce is Sterling Hill. Sterling, say hi. Is she still there? Hello. Hello. Okay. (laughs) Sterling Hill, as you may know, is the creator of MTHFRsupport.com and Sterling's app. And frankly, her passion, she's a true advocate. She has been researching genetic SNPs. She understands them better than anyone else in the world. As a matter of fact, anybody who you talk to about Genetic SNPs was probably taught by Sterling. Uh, She has an application that you run your uh, raw data through. The second version is coming out very soon, which is going to be even more wonderful and more explanatory. Uh, There is nobody who I've met who has more passion for this uh, subject than Sterling, and I'm really happy to have her on the show tonight. Also, we have Cynthia Smith. Hey, say hi, Cynthia. Hi, guys. Okay, Cynthia originally developed a passion for functional medicine, clinical nutrition and genetics and nutrigenomics. She utilizes nutrition's genetics and a comprehensive health history and test data, uh including various from various uh testing labs uh in her practice. Uh she is a very accomplished woman. She has several degrees. Uh she's also an attorney. She has um She's also an electrical engineer, and she probably won't let me tell you about the rest of the things that she's qualified to do. Uh, She is, uh, frankly, one heck of an intelligent woman, and um, she has gone into this area, and she's been helping many, many people, uh, especially because she is so incredibly dogged, and she learns well, and she practices, and she cares. Our main speaker tonight is Dr. Carolyn Ladowski. Carolyn, please say hi.
3: Hi, everybody.
1: Okay, hopefully we caught the Australian accent there. <clears throat> Carolyn mm-hmm. Ladowski is a naturopath, herbalist, and nutritionist who has a Bachelor's of Herbal Medicine, a Bachelor of Naturopathy, Advanced Diploma of Naturopathy, and Diploma of Nutrition, and has also, taken, also studied courses at genetic, in genetics at Duke University, and the University of Maryland. Uh she presently works uh and practices her, practices her trade at Northbridge Nutrition and Natural Health in Sydney. I think it's in Sydney. I hope it's in Sydney. Okay, and she also is the head of MTHFRsupport.com Australia. She is a results-oriented health expert who who has the ability to provide straightforward and practical advice to address your specific health issues, working with her, working with you during your entire course of healing. Her key focus is hormone balancing, whether that be menopause, pregnancy, or different life stages and allergies and sensitivities. In other words, she is of like mind to us. So, Karen, I'm incredibly ecstatic to have you on the show. Uh, Would you like to take lead and start talking about menopause Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, there is a PDF out there. If you go to look on the chat room, I've uh, published it twice. Uh, You also can get it on mthfrsupport.com, the Facebook blog, my own Facebook blog. I I tried to put it out far and wide. So, Carolyn, take it away.
3: Thank you, Jess. Well, for those of you who do have the presentation open, I'm going to follow it, and then I'm going to invite Cynthia and Sterling to pipe in whenever they feel like it, but I will ask them specifically to give us some feedback on, on particularly some of the SNPs and and how we can look towards those. But we're not going to focus on the SNPs tonight, but certainly give you a really good broad cross-section overview of menopause and some of the symptoms that may be affecting you. So what is menopause? What does it mean? Well, it's from the Greek word meno, which means monthly, and pauses to stop. So we're really talking about our periods stopping, and we really don't talk about menopause until retrospectively your periods have stopped for twelve months or more. And I guess the the most common age, the mean age for menopause is about fifty one, but it can happen anytime from forty five to fifty five years of age, and that's considered to be perfectly normal. We do, however, have premature menopause, and that's when it happens before the age of 40, and there's certain things that can affect that uh, low estrogen levels and an increase in what we call follicle stimulating hormone, which is FSH, and they can cause a woman to stop their periods early. We can also get primary ovarian failure, and this is when the ovaries are just unable to produce enough follicles because there's a problem with the, fo- the ovary itself and this unfortunately results in depletion of eggs, and usually that happens before the age of 40. You can also get medically induced menopause, and that can be because your doctor may want to give you drugs to help with endometriosis or uterine fibroids, and you can get post-chemo. Certainly women can go into menopause. And if you're perimenopausal when you... Uh, take the chemotherapy and drugs. Usually, you will go into menopause and you won't get your periods back. However, younger women do tend to get their periods back. So, if you look at the next chart, it will show you the hormones uh, pre and post menopause. And what what's happening here is that it occurs when your natural secretion of progesterone, testosterone, and estrogen reduce. And est- estradiol is the main um, estrogen before menopause, but then we have estrone, and you can see in that chart there that estrone is the more dominant uh, estrogen post menopause. Prior to menopause, as I said, it's estradiol, and it is certainly the the principal form of estrogen. So. Progesterone levels will also remain low, and usually they'll be low for the rest of the life. Now, it's important to remember that estrone is made, mainly made from our androgens, and that happens in our fatty tissue. So when the ovaries stop producing, we will get fatty tissue um, helping to, in the periphery helping to increase our estrone. Now, if you look at the next chart, you can see just a little summary there of what's happening with our hormones pre- and post-menopause. And in a normal reproductive woman, our estradiol will be anything from 50 to 200. We like it to sit around about 120, 140. Um, and in perimenopause, that can change, but certainly postmenopausally, it will drop and we usually see it around about 40 or less. The pituitary hormones, however, the follicle-stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone, we like to see those levels below 10 in a reproductive woman, but perimenopausally, we will see those start to increase. And by postmenopause, menopause uh, certainly they'll reach anything from 25 um, greater than 100 So it's the follicle-stimulating hormone, the luteinizing hormone and the estrogen that we look at predominantly to gauge whether someone is menopausal. Now, the things that influence menopause, definitely weight has a, a really big issue because thinner women are more likely to have not only an earlier menopause but pretty much a rougher menopause. And if you are more overweight, it can actually delay the onset of menopause. And as we said, estrogen is our main estrogen. And although its production really has little to do with the ovary, so once ovulation has ceased, although the ovary and the adrenal gland produce what we call androstenedione, it's the adrenal gland that then becomes responsible for our east drone. And that's why your adrenals, as Dr. Jeff put in his original article, are so important. And the ovaries regulate production of estrogen, as we said, in the fat cells. So the thinner you are, the less peripheral estrogen you are making and therefore your symptoms will be a lot worse. Smoking. So smoking has definitely been linked to early menopause and it's been suggested to to cause destruction of our follicles. And there's various studies out there that show it can bring it on as early as two years. So definitely we want to be getting rid of the smoking. Pre-menopausal behavior, exercise. So we know that the better shape we're in, the better our hormones are, and obviously the better transition into menopause. Diet, the more inflammatory our diet the more menopausal symptoms we're going to have. Stress, so as we said, the more stressed you are, the more stress on the adrenals, the less the adrenals are helping supply this periphery um, in the the fat, the estrone. the more we're going to be affected by menopause. And I think a really big component, and I'm sure Cynthia, you would agree with me here, that a woman's attitude going into menopause is so crucially important because in a lot of cultures in the world, menopause, the word menopause doesn't even exist. And so when a woman ceases her period, it's a real time for celebration. It's a rite of passage. It's a new beginning. They're seen as elder states people. And unfortunately, in our Western cultures, we don't embrace menopause. And many women see themselves as really past it. Cynthia, would you agree with that? Yes. Yeah, so I think it's really important and one of the things that I I really sit down and spend a lot of time with my menopausal patient is for them to really embrace it. Think of a new beginning. Think of um, this is the time for them. This is the time to go out and do what you always wanted to do. It's probably you don't have kids around at home anymore, And so women find it very difficult all of a sudden to be on their own, not having to have key responsibilities if they're working from home. If they're not working and they're at home, then they're at a bit of a loss and all of a sudden they're at home, nothing to do. So I would say what a fantastic time to go out there and really do whatever you want to do. Go and do a course, go and do yoga, go and study again. I mean it's a fantastic time of your life to actually do what you wanted to. Cynthia, uh Sterling, you have anything
2: to add? Yeah, I wanted to just say a couple things. Um there's also uh the effect of low cholesterol um will will limit hormone production a little bit earlier. So women that are having issues with their gallbladder or bile production because of C O M T SNPs or S U L T 2A1 SNPs often have issues absorbing their fats, building cholesterol, and then cholesterol, of course, is used as the basis for making our hormones. And so upper GI health is also very important to um, influence, us, influences, influence us as we go through menopause.
3: Absolutely. I agree 100%. And how many times do we see people with either way too low or way too high um, cholesterol? And I think certainly we all know with regards to methylation that fat metabolism is a really big issue. And just by increasing methylation, we can help with fat metabolism and help get cholesterol under
2: control. Very good point. Yeah, sometimes sometimes even women with high cholesterol will not be absorbing their fats very well because of a gallbladder issue. So sometimes high cholesterol is really more associated with the diet Matching the person's genetics. In other words, does that person need to have a lower carbohydrate intake, um, uh, a different proportion of fats, that type of thing? But the gallbladder issue has more to do with the bile, the quality of the bile that's made, and therefore the quality of the bile is not good. So it's let's say it's thick or The person has, the woman has gallstones. Her ability to absorb her fats, which have the, which include the building blocks to build the cholesterol to make the hormones is lower.
3: Yep, and we all know that taurine is really good to assist with that. Okay, so yep. when, when things um, start to change, um, we really call that perimenopause, and that's the time before menopause when things in the start cycle start to change, and that can really be anything from 10 years before. On average, usually, though, it's about five years, and we can get anything from irregular periods, and that could be heavy or lighter periods. And this, I think, is when we want to talk about our genetics because particularly those who have the COMT mutation will have a tendency to have this heavier period or show signs of estrogen dominance um, because the COMPT enzyme is so critical for our estrogen metabolism. This means that there's certain estrogens that we need to be able to get rid of And when this enzyme isn't doing its job, we get this toxic buildup of estrogen, and we call this estrogen dominance. And it can give us signs and symptoms like breast swelling, fibrocystic breast, fibrocystic ovaries, fibroids, endometriosis, headache, as we said, heavy periods, longer periods, weight gain, foggy head um problems with thyroid function. And I think sterling it's probably there's many other SNPs that we, we also talk about with estrogen um dominance um and and problems mm-hmm. with estrogen yeah. breakdown. Do you want to talk about those?
4: Yeah, well um, Cynthia touched base with the um um Sifana transfer section the S L U T two A one that definitely um you know it utilizes PAP as a sulfonate donor to catalyze the sulfonation of steroids and bile acids in the liver and adrenal glands, you know. And then the 1A1, that one um, also um, has gestrogen transferase activity, the SLUT1A1. And then the comps, of course, we know about that one. And then the CYPs as well, um, CYP, what, 1A1, 1B1. 1, uh, 1B1, yep. Yeah, and then also um, CYP-2E1 and 3A4 um, are big players as well. Um, I've been doing a lot of writing on this lately on on the CYP ones, and it's amazing on just certain drugs and toxins that can inhibit these and cause estrogen dominance as well and then, um, you know, cause a storm and then cause somebody to go into an early menopause when they're not – you know, following a good diet, they're eating a lot of soy or, you know, whatever. That was me. I, I was the perfect storm myself if I look at my genetics. I'm homozygous for the comps. I'm homozygous for six of the oug 2 a ones I have a cyp one b one And then um, you can also um, have a domino effect with the other genes, too. And then we have kind of a manic mess. <laughs> you know, a lot of people... Um, um, when the hormones are imbalanced. And I went into early menopause myself had my uterus removed at 29. Um, And I I wish I would have knew about this sooner because I probably could have saved myself from going into early menopause, you know. um, But there are a lot of genes that um, play a role in this. And um, what we're doing right now with the variant reports, we're getting out um, some information on people and, you know, what foods are best to avoid, um, you know, what um, drugs are best to be cautious with when you have um, these SNPs compromised?
1: Just uh, if I if I may if I may just for a moment, um, Sean Bean has joined us. Sean, say hi. I know he's there. I see him, but I, so he's there too. And just to let you know, the gang is all here. Go ahead. Sorry.
3: Um, right, and also a then I um, are
4: very important too Sterling, aren't they? Yeah, they are very important. And that's where um phase one liver detox comes in. The CYP one A one, the one A two, the one B one, the three A four, um, the two E one SNPs that we have on the variant report. Um, they're very important. Um, they're very crucial. Um, you know, um, things that can really cause an overload in this area or are, you know that we're finding out is um, that that will cause um these genes to start expressing um are things like um genetically modified foods have been known now to um affect the CYP pathway. So if you're sitting there and you know you, you're going into early menopause, you're dealing with all these fibroid tumors and stuff, it might be a good idea for you to get away from genetically modified foods, glyphosate. That's what they that that's what they put in Roundup. It's also sprayed on the conventional foods. Can do it. You know these foods um, that are um, also injected with bovine growth hormone can cause that phase one liver detox to just go awry. You know.
3: Yeah. Oh, and and, and obviously neurotransmitters have a big effect too, Sterling, Because you know oh, the, yeah. the more stress we've got the more overstimulation of the sympathetic nervous system, it decreases production of progesterone, Like glucose levels also um, are, are an issue. And, and cortisol exposure, obviously it will have an effect on bones, the um, integrity of the skin, our muscle, tissue, tissue yes. inflammation, sleep. Yes. Um, all of these things are vitally important, aren't they?
4: Yeah,
3: they no are very important. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're we're talking about perimenopause here, and and some of the symptoms that we not might see. So we've talked about our heavier periods, um, perhaps being associated with all the genes that um, Sterling just talked about. Our COMP, our 1B1, 2E1, 3A4, SULT, um, 2A1 SNPs. Um, and and you know that hot flushes, insomnia is a very big one usually because of the hot flushes, night sweat sweats, weight gain, that's a very common um phenomenon for perimenopause. We really see that change in um, fat distribution. Mood changes, as we said, um can be definitely affected by changing hormones. Sore breath is a is a classic one. Uh, one that we we've known about for a long time and very few um, doctors realize is that that crawling sensation of little ants on the skin is uh, very indicative of uh, perimenopause Uh, joint pain headache and definitely anxiety and mood issues and then when we get closer to menopause Then we can, and post-menopause, we experience symptoms of vaginal dryness, Uh, and again, that's because of our estrogen levels declining. We've got a decrease in pelvic tone, perhaps uterus, bladder, or bowel issues. Uh, Loss of libido is definitely a big one, and that's due to our declining testosterone, possibly because of our... um, decrease in DHEA, um, adverse effects with the adrenal glands and our steroid hormones, bladder control, male pattern hair loss and due to estrogen but also because we can get a decrease in what we call sex hormone binding globulin which means that there's more testosterone that's available in circulation. It's not being bound up. Uh, we can also get, as a result of that, excess facial hair. Migraine, definitely a, a, a very common symptom in that perimenopause and indeed some postmenopausal women. Palpitations, I would say probably 80% of my perimenopausal patients will present with um, palpitations. Changes in body shape, as we said, it really affects lean muscle mass and it increased abdominal um, fat, that'll have a big big bearing on um our body shape. And musculoskeletal changes as we um decrease our our body mass and we've got an increase in body weight, we we also lose um bone, which is accelerated once our estrogen levels decrease. So we've really got to look after our, our bone health. And um Hot flushes are probably the main sign and symptom of menopause and perimenopause. And they really can range from two a day to 40 a day. And Cynthia, I guess a lot of your patients would um, have major issues with this, anything from being drenched in perspiration to feeling dizzy or having headaches or palpitations or brain fog. Um, Anything that you'd like to add about hot flushes, not so much being triggered triggered by estrogen, but definitely that increased activity in the hypothalamus, and it's that luteinizing hormone which really um, gives us this uh, increase in flushes. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, I know know about hot flashes, been there, done that. Uh, My girlfriends and I sometimes (laughs) sit around and have a glass of wine, and we sit there fanning ourselves, because wine is a trigger, too, for hot flashes, but... I did want to mention about the bone health, and this is something that Sean brought to our collective attention about a year and a half ago. Women who are in uh, perimenopause and menopause are starting to lose their estrogen, and so that means they're losing some protection for a variety of things. Um, Estrogen is a double-edged sword, as we know, when we're in our reproductive years and we have certain SNPs like COMT, we have, you know, more extreme issues with EMS and all of that and fibrocystic breast disease. But as we pass into menopause and we lose our estrogen, we're much more susceptible to inflammatory conditions. Those could be autoimmune, um, it could be just general immune system issues because you might have Lyme disease. But regardless, if you're in a case, if you're in a state of inflammation, and it could be cellular, it could be gut inflammation, a number of types of inflammations, and you're taking vitamin D supplements, and you're measuring your vitamin D25, which is typically what doctors measure, and your numbers are, you know, hovering and you keep increasing your vitamin D, what could be happening in the presence of inflammation is you're converting that D25 to D125, which then in turn will start to pull calcium out of your bone. So what you're doing is you're creating kind of in the background a situation where you're demineralizing your bone. And so for women who are in the menopausal years or have known some sort of known inflammation or have a higher CRP, it's really important that they not only measure their D120 or their D25 levels, which is what doctors standardly measure, but also their D125 levels because you just don't want to unwittingly demineralize your bones because you're trying to do a good thing and take vitamin D.
3: Right, correct. And also, we, we, we also find with that increased D125, you're more susceptible to autoimmune disease as well. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, and as and, and Cynthia just said, hot flushes, they're made worse by smoking, alcohol, definitely, uh, particularly wine, uh, stress and anxiety, uh, made worse by our emotions. The more stressed we are, um, and the more anxious we are, the more uh, depressed we are, the more likely we are to flush. And even drinking a hot tea or coffee and having spicy food can definitely um, affect that. And as we said, our decrease in in body weight. Depression. Fluctuating levels of hormones cause changes in the brain. And certainly depression, for a variety of different reasons, um, can definitely affect people, um, women, post And it's not only related to changes in in estrogen um, but it's also the neurotransmitters that we have and there are many SNPs as we know, sterling, that affect um, our neurotransmitters and it's more likely that women who have depression prior to menopause will experience menopausal mood changes and our attitude to menopause as we said definitely influences mood so if we're feeling like we're on the scrap heap and there's really nothing left in life we're not going to feel particularly happy, are we? So it's important that we have a really good attitude and it's your practitioners and your doctors that are going to help you realise that at the end of the day, you know, there's a lot to do postmenopause post-menopause. You, nowadays, we spend half of our lives post-menopausally. So if we're thinking at the age of 50, we're on the heap we're going to have a very sad and sorry life for the rest of our lives. So we really want to be changing attitudes towards um, menopause. And exercise is very yeah. important. Sterling, would you like to add something there?
4: Yeah. Um, Well, the neurotransmitter thing, um, it, it's a big deal. The adrenal and the neurotransmitters... Um, when um people um have these SNPs that are affected and um they're they're consuming the wrong foods and stuff, neurotransmitters can go awry. Um specifically, you know, when you look at COMP that has a lot to do with the oestrogen metabolism, um, you know, um these people can end up with crazy, crazy anxiety, elevated dopamine, epi, nor Um then, um, then they're backing it down with coffee, and then their 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 epi's so high, their adrenals get shot, and then early menopause hits. Um, I know um, Dr. Jess doesn't want to talk too much. He wanted the ladies to talk, but I'd love to hear his take on the neurotransmitter part of all this too.
1: Well, the, <clears throat> the neurotransmitters can either be primary or secondary. Okay, generally speaking. Um, your life circumstances can cause primary neurotransmitter imbalance which is what causes mood changes and so forth that can be exacerbated by either uh, menopausal changes um i've always i've always understood that serotonin is one of the key players in hot flashes um the um uh, sometimes it's an argument which came first the chicken or the egg but uh, to be perfectly honest it's um I think that uh long term we live in a very chronically stressful society. So the fact that our adrenal glands and our adrenal system can get compromised and go into adrenal not failure but adrenal exhaustion by the time menopause runs, rolls around uh, is kind of a given for most people and in that particular case that's going to affect the adrenal hormones specifically DHEA and cortisol and that's going to affect I think the quality of menopause okay um which is the was the purpose of the the article that i that I posted, and um I think that one of the ways that you can better the perimenopausal or the menopausal syndrome is by attending to the adrenals in addition to everything else that you're doing because that's where you get the majority of your hormones is from the adrenal cortex.
2: Right. I just wanted to add one thing too. As far as neurotransmitters, we tend to we tend to fall more in sympathetic mode as we get older, especially after menopause, which means that our excitatory neurotransmitters tend to run higher. And our calming neurotransmitters like GABA and serotonin tend to run lower. And so there's certain things you can do. Um it's helpful if you know what your genetics are, but even if you don't, um if you know things like magnesium is a GABA Agonist, meaning that magnesium will help uh, keep your GABA supply going, which is a, a, a kind of a calming neurotransmitter. GABA receptors are what are stimulated by things like Xanax and Valium. So, and you know that they're very popular. But there's certain minerals and cofactors and vitamins that, if you can take those, um, you can help protect your calming neurotransmitters and keep those levels in check up against your excitatory neurotransmitters, and there's a whole lot of things. Magnesium is one, uh, chlorine, vitamin C, um, uh, B5P, which is a bioavailable or active part of vitamin B6. So those things, too, are very helpful.
1: I tend to agree with Cynthia. Um, it's been my view from from being in practice for so long that like I said, our our chronically excitatory, our chronically stressful society makes us overuse our inhibitory neurotransmitters, and they eventually, um, if you will, the warehouses eventually fall low. Uh, and one of the reasons for that are our leaky guts or bad guts because we can't absorb the amino acid precursors to uh, things like serotonin, which would be uh, tryptophan. We can't absorb it we have difficulty in uh, absorbing the glutamine that turns into glutamate and then GABA. Um, If there's a lot of intestinal dysbiosis, it tends to go towards the excitatory glutamate side. Um, Some of the things you said were absolutely correct. You know, taking various minerals will help the pathways along. Uh, But I think a primary assessment of uh, the neurotransmitter status or at least um, taking... Neurotransmitter precursors. If you were going to do it presumptively, so like GABAergic agents, like um, uh, phenylated GABA, you got to be careful with that. Or 5 uh, tryptophan sometimes can be a benefit, even if you do it empirically.
2: Mm-hmm. The other thing too that um, that happens a lot of times is as we get older uh, and we lose our we lose our estrogen, our the parietal cells that line our stomach don't work as well. Um, And part of that is is just from, you know, toxins and things that are built up that affect the mitochondria in the parietal cells that that allow the parietal cells to do their job. And one of their jobs is to make hydrochloric acid. And so if you're not making good hydrochloric acid, then you can suffer as far as uh, absorbing the amino acids that are these precursors to the calming neurotransmitters, as well as the excitatory, but generally it's the calming, like the tryptophan. So mm-hmm. it's really Agreed. important, again, to think about the upper GI. Make sure that you've got decent hydrochloric acid levels. Make sure your bile is working or is healthy. It's not thick. Make sure it's, you know, fluid so that it can be released by the gallbladder. So upper GI is very important, and it has to be looked at if, if women are experiencing hormonal problems as well.
1: I do want to give one warning out to everybody. by uh, Somebody had mentioned taurine as a as an inhibitory neuromodulator. And that's very true. But um taurine in higher doses can be excitatory. It can cause hyperactivity and insomnia. Uh some of the bigger sources of taurine are things like monster drinks, Red Bull, okay, and uh those things that we tend to drink to wake up and uh the reason that they're in there uh is, is not so much to protect the brain but to protect the heart because taurine in high enough doses acts like lidocaine which is an antiarrhythmic and uh overdosing somebody on taurine uh does not help their their inhibitory um neurotransmitters in fact does quite the opposite so um if somebody was thinking about taking taurine uh, be careful <laughs> okay if you start getting excitation stop
2: Yes, I think it's important when you're when you're working with uh, amino acids that you do some sort of a, an amino acid assessment. You know, maybe look at the plasma versus the urine to see what you actually have available versus what you're spilling. And sometimes, if you're spilling things like taurine, it means that the pathways that need the taurine don't have the cofactors. The enzymes are, are mm-hmm. not working very well, and so you spill it. So if you've got that comparison of plasma amino acids versus urine, you have some ideas of, of, of what you have in the in the store, so to speak,
1: and what your body is just wasting. That's absolutely true. Which should let everybody in the world know that it's not you. What's required in all of these cases is due consideration with a professional that knows what they're doing, and following algorithms blindly is a very dangerous thing.
2: Yep.
1: And,
3: you know, going back, Sterling, to some of the... um, the SNPs that can affect... I mean, glycine is also another um, calming inhibitory neurotransmitter, and there are the SHMT, the GHMT, SNPs that will affect glycine. Um, GAD, as as Dr. Jess said, GAD, GAD is a big one, um, I find, with particularly people that can't sleep. And that's our next point, is that insomnia... Um, is is a big part of perimenopause. And not only is it because our um, estrogen is declining, but also our progesterone is becoming imbalanced, particularly perimenopausally. And in in menopause, it's decreased. And getting up through the night, um, going to the toilet is very common, particularly if you have got estrogen dominance. There could be, well, a lower tolerance to stress and if we're not doing enough exercise and we're drinking coffee and having alcohol, it'll all affect sleep. And one of the things that I certainly find is that glycine can really easily get depleted, as Dr. Jess did with, we're, we're too stressed. And Sterling, you might just want to um, have a, just say a few words about glycine and how it's affected by some of these SNPs?
4: Glycine? Are you saying lysine?
1: I glycine? I think glycine.
4: Glycine. Yeah. Um. It, it certainly can calm calm you down. Um. I know it calms me down a little too much. Um. I don't know too too much about the genes that are related to glycine though. Um. Glycine. Um. So uh, somebody else would have to step in on that one. Um, yeah. I did know about lysine being needed, though, because a lot of these genes you've been talking about are dependent on B6, and if there's no lysine in the body, you can't absorb B6. But the lysine, I'm really not too familiar with um, the relationship to that and snips right now.
2: Yeah, a couple things about glycine. Glycine is one of the peptides needed to make glutathione, so we have to have a, a good you know, stock of glycine. And the other thing is it, it tastes like sugar, so you can actually buy it, in a canister and put it in your sugar bowl, you don't want to overdo it, maybe a teaspoon a day. But it it does have a calming effect. Um, But it's something that is is not only needed for some neurotransmitter activity, but it's also needed to make glutathione. And um, the other thing is that um, some companies sell glycine as something that you make before you go to sleep to help you sleep.
1: Yeah, the particular gene involved is uh, glycine and methyltransferase, GNMT.
2: Yes, GNMT and SHMT. SHMT, correct.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Okay. um, and, And also, I think probably one of the... Cynthia, you'd probably agree, one of the most disturbing um, changes for a lot of people is this change in body shape and the change in fat distribution and loss of muscle mass and that also affects changes in energy. And the stats tell us that really people will gain about half a kilogram a year um, post in total, around about eight. We work in kilograms, I'm not quite sure what that is in pounds, but over... You know, the the whole of postmenopausal women on average will put on about 8 kilos. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, it's it's 2.2 pounds per kilogram. Um, One of the things that I've noticed with a lot of my clients and also myself is as I've gotten older, I'm 56 now, I really have to watch my carbohydrate intake. If I keep my carbohydrate intake at a decent level and really just use fruits and vegetables and an occasional, you know, bit of rice, um, my weight is pretty stable, and I'm not getting the midsection weight. But if I deviate from that, then I will begin to get the the midsection weight. So I really think lowering carbohydrate load, lowering the grains that you're eating, is helpful to to stave off that 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 midsection weight gain.
3: Yes, and I and I also find that estrogen metabolism is crucial for that too. If you've got and when we're talking about estrogen metabolism what we're talking about is we have a two hydroxy a seventeen and a four in estrogens that we we're talking about and predominantly we want that two hydroxy and when we get an increase in our sixteen and these are reliant on cot and our cyp enzymes to break these down our if we've got an increase in our our seventeen in our 16-hydroxy, then this is more what we call proliferative. So we're we're more likely to get the weight gain, the fibrocystic breast, breast, the fibrocystic ovaries. And the four we don't want because that is more more likely to um, relate to breast cancer or prostate cancer. So it's not talking about how much estrogen you have, but how effectively your body is getting rid of the toxic estrogen and it's these toxic estrogens that are more likely to cause you to um, weight, to have weight gain. So also ensuring that the liver is working effectively to get rid of these can help reduce the weight. And I definitely agree with Cynthia in that if you can reduce your, particularly your grain load, it, it definitely has A for a better diet, less less inflammation, better gut response, and you're more likely to maintain good weight. And, of course, exercise is vitally important. So when we're talking about treatment options, then let's take these one at a time and any of you guys type up at any point in time.
1: Yeah, I think Sean wanted to jump in here somewhere. Sure. Sean, did you want to say something? Sean? Oh, Sean. Sorry about that. He's been texting me like he wants to talk, but I can't hear him. Okay.
3: Um, okay, go well, ahead. I'm
2: Sean,
3: sorry. If you Sean, if you want to talk at any time, just interrupt me. Um, so, if we look at take take these conditions one at a time, let's talk about stress. So, from a I'm a herbalist, so so one of the things that um, I know works very well is Rhodiola, which is an adaptogen, um, Eleutherococcus, um which is a ginseng, and vivifis, which is a nervine tonic. As Cynthia said, certain supplements like magnesium, calcium, zinc, our B vitamins, 5-HTT, which is our precursor to serotonin, melatonin, but obviously we've got to look at the pathways there and, and um, melatonin does or doesn't work for some people. Valerian, hops, passion flower, avoiding caffeine, avoiding too much alcohol, making sure we exercise and getting some sort of stress management techniques, whether that be yoga or meditation. And of course exercise, probably one of the key ones because endorphins are being released during exercise.
0: And it will help bring expectations
1: into
0: balance It also started? Yes. Oh, sure. there's Sean. Oh, there we are. I guess I had it plugged I had it plugged in the wrong thing.
1: What I, what? Sorry, you're yelling at me that I got you on mute, I don't. One
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, thing I want to interject here is is as your DHA drop, what happens also is your IGF will drop. When your IGF drops what this cause what this do is, is it causes will cause a shift in your um sleep patterns. Because actually, you need growth hormone to stimulate. Uh, you actually need growth hormone to stimulate GABA in the brain itself um, through the GNR to increase GABA, which helps with sleep. Now, one of the reasons why women, which I was trying to jump in there, gain weight is, is because as DHA drops, what's well, one of the functions of DHA is to burn fat, but also having low estrogen will also cause you to increase fat intake because of the fact of the increase of because the body's going to try to increase homeostasis so what it's going to do if it doesn't get estrogen it's going to pile on weight in order to increase the aromatase um, in order to, for the body to make fat. okay some of the other factors what you'll notice is, is you'll also start to notice the hormones uh, start to shift in regards to cholesterol okay the cholesterol will actually increase okay because what happens is, believe it or not, you actually need estrogen in order to burn off the um, cholesterol. So whenever you deal on bioidentical hormones or anything, if you use the estrogen, okay, it will actually lower the lipids itself. So there's a huge combination there. So whenever you see elevated cholesterol in a female, you want to think hormone balance, which would be low DHA and also low estrogen you also have to think, too, because low low DHEA also in, decreases testosterone, and testosterone is needed for um, a lot of the main factors, such as bone building, um, also um, for osteoporosis. Um, a couple of times, I've reversed osteoporosis by using DHEA itself, just because the fact of IGF-1 is, is one of the factors that are needed to help, bone, help to uh, stabilize bone growth, so... There's a huge connection in between here in the hormones in regards to estrogens. Um, Cynthia brought up a great point, but do you remember, estrogen dominance will also create fatty liver, okay? Just because you need estrogen to help burn the fat, okay? Estrogen is also needed for glutathione, too. When you look at in studies and stuff, you'll see that low estrogen will actually reduce, low estrogen will actually cause decrease in glutathione itself. So, and going back to the glycine, one of the reasons why your body sucks up glycine is because it's trying to activate the phase 2 liver detoxification, okay, which would most likely be conjugation. And one of the ways your body gets rid of estrogen is through conjugation. And glycine is needed for that function to happen. So, yeah, that would be the connection that I was trying to make.
3: Okay, great, thanks, Sean. Uh, as far as hot flushes go, um, there are a lot of natural remedy. Uh, St John's Wort can help um, to increase serotonin, uh, so it will reduce anxiety, stress. Um, it's a mild antidepressant. Um, it's a very good mild antidepressant. It's probably the best natural SSRI or serotonin selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. And Semicerfuga, which we call black cohosh, is probably one of the most widely used botanicals for the relief of hot flushes. And in Germany, it's actually approved as a non-prescription medicine for the treatment of hot flushes because it helps to decrease our luteinizing hormone that gives us the the surge. And it's, funnily enough, the combination of the two work extremely well. As Cynthia has already already said, magnesium helps with stress, it regulates our body temperature, it helps with the vasodilation of blood vessels, our B vitamins, our vitamin D deficiency can be associated with an increase in follicle stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone. Our vitamin E, great antioxidant that has an affinity for the female reproductive system. It may help reduce hot flushes and help lubricate the vagina.
2: Uh,
3: essential
0: fatty acids. Sean, I'm, I'm sure you've got some more to add in there. Well, yeah, definitely, you know, a lot of times with the estrogen applications and stuff, you may want to look at, um, I've had a lot of people who do transdermals and they just don't work. Sometimes the vaginal application gets the best results. Um, also with hormone issues with a de- key decrease in DHA, I also noticed women are more susceptible to Candida too. Uh, one of the common links I found with in relationship to immune system and candida in the older age is is that the DHEA um, dropping weakens the immune system, which makes women more older women more vulnerable to um candida and other co- um, opportunistic infections right okay, good point
3: uh and and as far as other remedies, um I won't read through all these, but there's a lot of great herbs that can help. To help not only with the sweating and anxiety and palpitations, but I think probably we should all talk about breast health because it's an important part, um, particularly in perimenopause. And perimenopausal women uh, can get breast cancer, Um, particularly we have to look at if there's a a family history of breast cancer, that's really important, and we have to consider our estrogen uh, metabolism. So getting regular, breast checks. Uh, very important doing self checks, get the doctor to to check um breast tissue. Uh has anyone got anything to add with regards to breast health and um even genes, sterling? Anything that you want to want to um incorporate here?
4: Well breast health and genes, yes, big deal. Um again, um what you put in your mouth and what you take prescription wise um can um actually cause a lot of problems with those genes um in breast health. Um for instance, um, you know, we know the CYP one A one, one B one, one A two, um, when that when that gene when those NIPs are compromised, um, and you have trouble metabolizing caffeine once those are compromised and you're sitting there and consuming a couple of cups co- cups of coffee a day. Um, what people don't realize is that um, caffeine can elevate your estrogen levels up to seventy to eighty percent. And if you have trouble breaking down the caffeine, you're gonna have trouble breaking down the estrogen that comes along with it. You know, those few cups of coffee a day can um actually um cause breast, breast um cancer. So, um, you know, everybody um kinda of looks at um you know what's caught. you know we we gotta we gotta find a cure for breast cancer, well, why don't we do the prevention you know <laughs> um we can look at the genetics um you know it's just it's a given if somebody's loaded down with um you know SLUT genes um v one fifty eight m h sixty two h you know the c y p's that we were speaking about um that you know it probably wouldn't be a good idea for them um to be consuming caffeine on a daily basis. Um, you know, eating um, um animal meat that's injected with bovine growth hormone, eating soy, you know, eating um estrogen rich foods, um you know, you can really um really um vet them and keep um proper breast health. You would wanna um avoid things if you needed a compliment in that area. I wish I would have knew this years ago. Like I said, I'd probably still have a uterus, you know. <laughs> Um, and I have had the fibroid tumors myself, the ovarian cysts. I had all of it, the painful periods, um, and lots of bleeding, and I was severely estrogen dominant. Um, you know, um, looking at these SNPs and knowing um, what you can avoid, um, we just, um, I, I've just been doing um, a lot of writing on, for instance, CYP3A4. We've been talking a lot about fluoroquinolones. Well, apparently, fluoroquinolones can um, affect the CYP pathway, too. Um, And we've had a lot of people damaged by fluoroquinolones. Now, what's going on with their estrogen? Are they going to be breaking it down after they've been damaged by these class of antibiotics, you know? Uh, Are are some of these people going to end up with a hormone-related cancer, poor breast health? You know, um, it's very important to know your genetics and let's start preventing these things instead of, Looking for a cure for something when it can be prevented by looking at your yeah, thing.
2: Yeah, I wanted to add one thing, um, just to kind of drill down on what Sterling said. Um, there's there's one combination that if a woman has this in her genetics, she has to be really careful, and that is the combination of CYP1B1 and comth H62H, and the COMT. Um, Met uh, valve 158. If you have those two, if you have the, the combination of CYP1B1 and those COMT downregulations, then your diet plays a huge role because you can actually cause that CYP1B1 enzyme to upregulate and force your estrogen through phase one very rapidly and convert it into a toxic uh, intermediary uh, metabolite, and it will sit there and then can leave your liver and recirculate if your COMT, which is supposed to catch it, and pull it through and conjugate it, is downregulated. So you've got something going fast, marrying with something going slow, and that in-between, that intermediary metabolite can recirculate and cause these these things that we talk about, um, like breast cancer. So in that case, you might end up building up uh, uh, 4-hydroxyestrone, which is very, very dangerous. Or you might be building up 16 alpha hydroxyestrum, which isn't as bad as before, but it's, also, it's a problem. What you really want is you want to match the speed of CYP1B1 to your COMT, and the way you do that is you have a healthy diet and lifestyle, you, you stay away from coffee, you don't eat charbroiled meat, you don't smoke, so those things will upregulate CYP1B1 if you have SNPs, and then you also support your COMT pathway with things like magnesium and anything you can do to to even out that speed of phase one, phase two, liver detox of your estrogen. And there's, there's lots of testing out there you can do to see how well your body's adjusting. You can do a genova diagnostic test and look at the hormone breakdown pathway. Look at your two, your four, your 16. You can also do uh, one by precision hormones that will do the same thing, plus also look at your adrenals because they all, you know, play together. But... For really, for women who've got these CYP1B1s and COMT, and sometimes they have to be so careful because that's where the lifestyle will affect whether or not your body will have a tendency to build up these 4-hydroxyestrone and cause things like cancer, including including the colon cancer.
1: If I could interrupt, we have about 30 minutes left to the show. I'd like to let everybody know that if you want to call in and ask the speakers a question. You can call in at 646-595-2277. That's 646-595-2277. If you're out of the country, you have to put a plus one in front of that. If you're in the chat room and you type out a question, I will announce it on the air uh, for the uh, group to answer. Uh, you should take advantage, people. Okay, this is a real expert group. So you really should take advantage to ask questions. This is the time to ask those tough questions. So let me see some phone calls coming in, okay? Go ahead. Thank you.
3: Okay. So um, just to Cynthia's point there and, and Sean previously, um, we can help that estrogen metabolism ratio favor our two hydroxy by things like broccoli sprout powder. We, we also call that indole-free carbonyl dim which is d methane it helps the break these estrogen down these estrogens down so that we don't get this these symptoms of estrogen dominance I think the um, the other thing we should all talk about is bone health because bones are continuously being broken down by our osteoblast cells and our osteoclast sorry building up by our osteoblast and, and broken down with our osteoclast and excess cortisol, as we know, will stimulate these osteoclasts. And as our muscle decreases, our estrogen decreases. We really need to look after our bone health. And as as um, Cynthia said, vitamin D is crucial. That we know our 25 hydroxy, our 125. But we need to look at all all the nutrients required for bone health: magnesium, calcium, zinc, manganese, boron, all those things. So. <laughs> Has um, anyone, Cynthia? Would you like to add something to that with regards to how we help our bone health?
2: Um, I, I, I wanted to circle back real quickly because we didn't talk about this. Um, uh, but GI health is also super important. The gut, the gut microbiome that you host in your in your in your digestive system is important because there are some bad actors there. There's some bad bacteria that will actually cleave off a conjugation of an estrogen that's now sitting in your stool, um, it's called beta-glucuronidase, it's an enzyme that they make, and then bring that conjugated or neutralized estrogen molecule back into an intermediary state, which is very dangerous. So we can't, we can't forget about the gut. And one of the things you can do to help that is taking uh, calcium glucorate. So that your body, your your bad gut bacteria doesn't unconjugate a neutralized estrogen molecule. Um,
1: you know, I've always I've the, always been curious. When when do you use DIM versus calcium d I use DIM it,
2: when I see uh, a sulfation pathway issues. I will use the DIM.
1: Okay. Thank you. I tend
0: I tend to use iodine to shift it because iodine will shift the 16 hydroxy ratio into the estriol which is E3. Uh, I've done numerous labs um, which was actually I just did one today and I predicted that was iodine that was the reason for that problem and actually uh, a urine test actually confirmed that so I tend to use more iodine because it doesn't affect the sulfuration pathway. Number two, it's got multiple factors because it does help with breast health. Number three, it also helps with thyroid um, issues. Normally when you start iodine, you might start to see your urine change bright yellow and dirty, same way with dim. And that's just an indication that it's starting to clear out some of the toxins in your body. before using DIM and stuff, it would be highly recommended to work on the phase two of the liver properly because when you start shifting the um, metabolites stuff, you have to be able to wash them away. Um, so that would be one of the recommendations. Um, I mean, DIM is definitely good. You've just got to watch it monitor it. DIM also needs to be taken with fat. Otherwise, if you don't take DIM with fat, it's basically just like DHEA, it's not going to go nowhere. Um, the DHEA, DHEA and DIM are fat soluble molecules. Okay, otherwise you just you waste your money if you're taking DHEA micronized without oil. And I have proven this hundreds of times through labs. And doctors were baffled how I was able to raise the DHEA up when they couldn't. They when they were having the resistance. All I did was take the DHEA out of the capsule, add a half a teaspoon into olive oil, and voila levels went from 60 up to 220 uh, because it was finally getting absorbed by the system. Okay,
3: good. Um, I think the B vitamins um, certainly are worth a mention here in terms of um, supporting um, methylation as well making sure that all of these pathways are working harmoniously. As has said, it's really important to look at your amino acid status, um, your neurotransmitters through an organic acid profile, and that really gives you an indication of how all these cycles are working together, whether it's the, the citric acid cycle, the methylation cycle, the urea cycle, that's all affecting detoxification and uh, neurotransmitter balance. I think... Um, The other things I'd like to mention are requirements of calcium. Um, We don't necessarily need to eat buckets and buckets of dairy to ensure that we have good calcium levels. Um, The dairy promotion councils here will promote the fact that you've got to eat liters and liters of milk to have calcium, That's that's not the case. And I'm sure, Sean, you would um, agree with that and um, have some things that you would like to say with regard to calcium.
0: Um, A lot of times uh, you definitely need calcium, but you also need the synergistic vitamins such as manganese and magnesium, copper, to all make calcium work. You also need vitamin K too. So like as Cynthia says, if your bile's not working right, and because your estrogen imbalance is going on, you're not going to be absorbing fat soluble, uh, fat soluble vitamins. Um, K is very K is very crucial to help keep it in the bones. Um, so yes, um, you definitely need calcium metabolism uh, to work properly. But also too, as you reach into, uh, as you go into menopause, you're going to see some alterations and shift in metabolism, and also thyroid markers too. So we also need properly functioning thyroid in order to have proper bone metabolism, which could be actually altered by the uh, metapause itself.
2: India, do you have anything to add? No, but I, I cut you off with the bone health. I was wondering if you wanted to mention anything else about bone health, because it really is crucial.
4: I'd like to mention something about bone health. You guys, fine?
1: Yes, yeah, yeah, fine. Yeah. Please go. We've been waiting on you. Okay.
4: All right. Well, here you go. Um, we've got a lot of people um, that come to us that um, are on coumadin and warfarin. Is the generic name for it. It's a blood thinner. Coumadin and warfarin, they um, um, what they do is they deplete vitamin K out the body, okay, um, and that's what helps lower the platelets in the blood. Um, so, um, many of these people that are in Cumen and Warfarin, um, what happens to them, um, is their calcium stops going to, transporting to the bone because their K is depleted and it goes into their vessels and arteries and forms a lot of plaque. I'm one of them that that ha- happened to as well. And then you get these huge plaque buildups and a piece of plaque can eventually break off and cause a heart attack or a stroke. Um, and, um. They have proven already through um, research and studies that people that are on Coumadin, Warfarin, the generic name, have twice as much plaque buildup in their vessels and arteries, and they go, in, they go into osteoporosis much, much earlier as well. Um, so anybody who is uh, going into menopause, you're, you're going to um, even have more of a problem than if you're on Coumadin or Warfarin. You would want to make sure that you would take K, be taking K two because um, you don't, of course you don't want the K one because that's spotting. K two bypasses spotting and will help transport that calcium you know, to the bone.
3: Okay, good point. Good
4: point. Um, Cynthia, do you want to
3: add anything more on um, perhaps how to measure bone density um, tests that you might refer? to Referral for, for um, bone density
2: test for what I'm, I'm sorry
3: bone density vitamin c no bone density,
2: oh bone density I'm sorry, um you can have the scan and you know those they have those scans that's what i that's what I use but i I also take uh, bone supplements, and I don't take them every day. Um, but usually the really good ones come in two bottles. There's a bottle of minerals and then there's a bottle of cofactors. And a, a variety of company makes mine I know Metagenics does. Numedica makes it. But I, I'm very careful about taking those supplements two or three times a week. And they're big. They're big supplements. Like you have to take four of the ones that are the minerals and two of the ones that are the cofactors. But it's important that you don't just take calcium. You don't just take magnesium. You've got to have the whole package. You've got to have all the minerals and all the cofactors, including, like Sterling said, the vitamin K.
3: Right. Um, do you... Uh, Sean, do you have any um, thoughts on there is a there's a brand of um, calcium um, support, um, I think I'm allowed to say the name, it's called Algae Cal Plus with strontium, and it's made from algae, and they will categorically say that they can reverse, um, certainly, osteopenia um, with using an algae form rather than um, calcium?
0: I think more natural forms of bioavailable calcium are definitely the way to go. Actually one of the best sources of bioavailable calcium is actually broccoli. So um, there's actually 300 milligrams of calcium actually and I, I believe it's a cup of broccoli. And second of all is is you can have all the calcium and all the proper calcium, but if you don't have the proper hormonal balance going on, it's not going to be able to be used properly. So getting the hormones and and getting the adrenals and all the other things, doing the basic work and check first, will actually enhance the calcium's um, assimilation in the body itself. But I am definitely agree with you 100% about um, more natural is more bioavailable.
3: Yeah, and also acidity has a really big part to play in calcium regulation because the more acidic we are, the more likely we are trying to buffer that and the only buffering is the calcium carbonate and we will be forced to release more from the bone. So if someone is eating a very highly inflammatory, highly acidic diet, then they're more likely to have that breakdown
0: of um, bone. And, you, and you'll and normally see that, too, and is it, um, I'm very stringent on the ranges that I look at in regards to calcium um, because when calcium gets above around 10, it's usually an indication that there's some type of imbalance going on in the acid base balance, which can be usually linked back to the adrenals. The adrenals, thyroid, or sex hormones are probably the major factors that actually drive that. And that's usually confirmed through further testings. And the reason why that's happening is is since there's not proper hormonal or endocrine system balance going on, it will pull calcium from the bone out into the bloodstream. So it's possibly an indication of how you're losing bone, or what happens is the body's pulling the bone from the tissue in order to neutralize the uh, acid in the uh, system itself. Right.
3: Well, I...
1: Does anybody else have any more questions? Have we got any questions from our audience dr Jeff? actually actually i'm I'm kind of uh, uh, surprised uh one more time people um uh, you have an expert panel here um when I wrote my article uh every everybody in creation was responding to it, so I'm sure that there's plenty of uh questions uh the number here is six four six Five nine five two two seven seven, and if anybody would like to call, please do um, and that's why we put this panel together so you could ask all your tough questions uh, if you don't want to talk on the phone there's the chat room is open um, so I kind of don't know what's happened, usually when I, I say that we start getting some phone calls and then hopefully in the next couple of minutes we will
2: I have a, I have a- go ahead I just had a comment, there's kind of a pink elephant in this menopausal room, and that is, if you're somebody who comes from a family where there's breast cancer or estrogen-receptive colon cancer or early prostate cancer or things like that, and you're going through menopause and you and you, you decide to contemplate hormones, um, you can either take the synthetic, which most of the people I work with don't, or you can take the bioidentical. So the pink elephant in the room is, so you're you're going through menopause, you want to try hormones, but you know that your clearing system for your hormones is not very good. So what would you guys all do?
0: First of all, I try first of all first of all, what I would do is, is I would probably work on the basics first, going back to the adrenals and the um working on the endocrine system and by using filling back the proper pathways by adrenal support giving them proper nutrition and start uh, giving them the building blocks their body needs uh, to, in order to, for those metabolic activities to work to clear and get the liver going on its own. Um, I would have probably also, uh, one of the natural alternatives that I found that women who don't respond to bioidentical hormones is MACA. MACA is very good. Um, it's very safe. It's, it's actually a, It's actually an adaptogen. Uh, it's highly available, bioavailable nutrition. It's not a drug. It's not really a supplement. It's actually a food. It's Peruvian. It's, it's a um, it's a yam that's actually found at high altitude in Peru. Um, and I've had very good success with that.
2: Yeah, that maca, maca powder you find in uh, health food stores, right? Um, it's a it's an adaptogen. It's been around for years, and a lot of people who are in the raw food world. You know, use use maca, but now it's getting to be more mainstream. And then, and then, Sean, what would you do to monitor those women to make sure that they were not making uh, the 16 alpha and the 4 hydroxy as drugs?
0: Well, actually, the maca actually has natural cruciferous vegetables in it, so it kind of acts a little bit like them itself in a way. So it kind of acts as a natural adaptogen, not just on the adrenals but also your total endocrine system. It also has uh, Issues it also has uh, properties to help thyroid, and what I look at. It's basically it's basically a glandular. it it's basically fuels the endocrine system um, to monitor those levels depending upon uh, what accessibility you have to testing um, there are tests out there um, depending on how your insurance plan is that are very very affordable um, and that would be the Genova 24-hour um, complete hormone test, which you can't beat. I think in Australia that we have, uh, Australia has an excellent NutriPath, um, an incredibly reasonable price. I have a lot of my clients from Australia uh, use that, and it's been a great marketing tool. It's actually much more affordable out over there than it is here. So. You know, I would definitely, um, if the practitioners are listening, look into that. And they actually have a profile that does the, just the estrogen metabolites itself. Mm-hmm. And, and then so I just i, think I
2: that's it. It. Oh sorry, I just have one more question for Sean because this is his expertise. Um, Sean, when you when you're working with women who are perimenopausal or menopausal and you support their adrenals, what do you typically see?
0: Um, what you typically see is, is number one is, is if they're progesterone deficient as raising the cortisol up, what would happen is, is if the body doesn't have enough cortisol, it's going to shift or sh- It's going to divert the progesterone into dealing with cortisol. If you remove the stressors, what happens is there's a negative feedback loop. The body senses said, you know what? I don't need any more cortisol down this. I don't need more cortisol. So what it does is it puts the progesterone, it retains the progesterone for more of a natural balance. So a lot of the times I have seen or reversed a lot of women who have had hormone balances by properly addressing their adrenal glands to conserve their progesterone itself.
2: And what what do you usually end up giving them to do that?
0: Oh, for number one is it depends on the neurotransmitters. If they're they're a CLMT and they're active, the last thing you want to do is give them rolliola, it'll spike it. Because rodiola will spike, um, just not the cortisol part of the adrenal, but also it spikes the neurotransmitters. So a lot of women who have rodiola or have taken rodiola uh, by a naturopath after three or four o'clock, may have any anxiety issues. Um, I usually my my go-to is usually ashwagandha or holy basil with a little bit of pantothenic acid. Because normally when you look at your genetic profile, you look at the NAT. As soon as you see the NAT, that automatically red flags in the adrenals. And 90% of the times when I check adrenal cortisol saliva test, it comes up um, an imbalance to confirm it. Mm-hmm. So and, and when, when you talk about, when
2: you talk about, oh, sorry, go
0: ahead. Using pantothenic acid and ashwagandha have been my go-to that have been a blessing for many of the women. Um, sometimes ashwagandha, you gotta watch, or might have adverse reactions because if the person uh, has severe nightshades, uh, ashwagandha is slightly nightshade, they've had bad reaction, or if you use ashwagandha and they have problems with uh, autoimmune disorders, because ashwagandha has stimulating properties to the immune system, it may also backfire. So. Uh, one of the indicators I ha- use is if I use ashwagandha, I get a bad reaction. I know I'm going to start looking into the autoimmune system and try and find out what's going on, what you know, what's going on in the immune system that's causing that. Then with then with the pantothenic acid, you know,
1: um,
0: 500 milligrams, you know, periodically, up until you know, most of my adrenal support is usually recommended up until no mil- later than two plus. Um, just because of the fact it can backfire on people. Um, and then sometimes, you know, if they can't take ashwagandha, I'll use holy basil. Um, actually, I found ashwagandha and holy basil are only the true two adaptogens out there. They don't stimulate or they don't they don't overstimulate and they don't understimulate. They keep your body in a natural homeostasis.
3: Yeah, and you mentioned radiola, Sean. You've got to be really careful with rhodiola because it inhibits COMPT. And so those people that um, have the COMP mutation with increased dopamine levels will be really overstimulated and and they don't feel great with rhodiola. But on the flip side, when your dopamine levels are low, rhodiola is a, a fabulous herb to use.
0: Absolutely. And, and if and if you get overstimulated, what I'll have to do is if I don't know how well they're you know, if they flip flop, what I'll do is is I have a little phenotrope or a little uh on hand and that takes they, I, I tell them if they get overstimulated, take one or two phenotrope and it will and will knock her right back down again.
1: Sean, they don't nobody knows what the word phenotrope means.
0: Uh basically what it is is it's it's phenylated GABA.
1: I, I know what it means. Would you tell them what the whole what the name of the product is, please? Well, Phenotropic
0: biotics Research is phenylated gaba that actually crosses the blood brain barrier and actually acts as I right. would say a natural genetics. Um That has been a blessing. That has been a blessing for oh my God, hundreds of people that i have worked with. I get emails all the time uh, mm-hmm. of how wonderful that you know I I have SICOM for six years. I literally. Within twenty four hours they'll email me back and say, What did you give me? I had the best sleep I had in years. Okay. I
1: uh, the the point I, I apologize, the point I was trying to make was you interchanged the the word phenobute and, and uh phenotropic. Okay, and uh we have had a problem with people going after different phenobutes uh as as opposed to using phenotropic or cavernase. And the reason, as you know, there's the fenobutes out there are the beta gamma aminobutyric acids, which have a lot of problems. But the phenotropic or cabinase is a 4 amino 3 butyric acid, which gives you, which is a phenylated GABA, but doesn't have any of the side effects. It's a conversation I tend to have 12 times a week. Okay, and I just want people to know that, to follow your advice exactly, not to go out and get the cheaper phenobutes, even though they sound like they're the same name. That's all. That was a
2: cookie. So, one thing I wanted to add is the, is the cabinets. I hear, I put the Cabernet chewable in my purse, and when I feel like some anxiety is coming on or I'm starting to get a, a series of flashes, if I take one, it'll stimulate my GABA receptors, and I feel much better.
0: The best time, Cynthia, is when you have autistic kids come into your office that bounce around like a ping-pong ball, and you see a single mom that looks like, you know, she's 10 years aged because of taking care of the kids and everything... And the kids bounce around the office, and all of a sudden, give me two or three phenotropes. and the parent looks at you like they're like, "What did you give my kid?" I said, and I joke with them. I said, "It's called parroting in the pill. All I did was take. All I did was take uh, put out the fire in the kid's brain." Yeah, it's
2: it pretty. It's a pretty awesome. It's a pretty awesome supplement because it does cross the blood-brain barrier. People who do take regular GABA that's not been phenylated no. properly, if they get a reaction from it and get a calming you know, sensation from regular GABA, then oftentimes that can mean that their blood-brain barrier is a little bit leaky because it really should not be able to cross
0: unless it's been
2: phenylated.
0: Yeah, and that's actually one of the things that I use to blood-brain barrier disruption. It's called the GABA challenge. If you give people about 5, 500 to 1,000 milligrams of GABA and they start hyperventilating or... And they have adverse reactions and you know you're dealing with um leaky not only leaky brain, but probably leaky cells, leaky gut and right on off the
2: pain Mm-hmm. Oh, I I think
0: that um well, I, I think
3: ahead. that we've
1: uh, oh. uh Okay, well listen, um I would like uh at this time, since we've got about four minutes left to the show. I'd like each of the speakers to um, let the audience know how they could get in touch with them should they want to um, get a consult or speak to um, speak to somebody on a professional basis. So, Carolyn, how would somebody get in touch with you should they want to consult with you or uh,
4: through through our
3: website, which is nthfrsupport.com.au, they can email us info at support dot com. dot au or call
1: one 260 Thank you, Sterling. Are you there?
4: Yeah, I'm here.
1: And I know um, that you do you do do consults for uh, for genetics. Should uh, somebody want to speak with you, or uh, consult with you, how would they go about making a um? How would they go about getting in touch with you?
4: Thank you. They can contact me at 504 616 0965 or at my website com or um, at my email address aware at gmail.com. That's c e t l o c a w a r e at
1: gmail.com. And Cynthia, how would anybody, who's ever like washing dishes or something, could they stop? <laughs> I'm hearing something in the background. Um, Anybody who would like to get in touch with you, how would they go about getting in touch with you?
2: Uh, you can get in touch with me through my website. It's lifezonewellness.com. So it's L-I-F-E-Z-O-N-E-W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S.com. But I'm, I'm I'm really not taking any new clients again until the end of January. I'm, I'm trying to wrap up the clients I currently have and, and work that off. Because you, you know, of course, Jess, we have to prepare for that
1: class. I know, but I I am preparing for the class. That's why I'm in my office seven days a week. (laughs) (laughs) Sean, how would people get in touch with you? They can get in touch with me at
0: my website. It's www.matrixhealthwell.com, and they can click on the contact button, and it will go right to my email, uh, or they can directly email me at info at matrixhealthwell.com. Um, And I'll be glad to address their issues.
1: And should somebody want to get in touch with myself, Dr. Jess Armine, I am at 610-449-9716, or you can fill out the contact information at www.drjessarmine.com. I want to thank the speakers. We've got about one minute left. I I want to thank the speakers for taking their time. I I know, Dr. Carolyn, this is the middle of your day. Uh, so I know that you pushed patients uh, aside so that you could speak with us, and I appreciate it. Uh, I know everybody else has taken their – I know everybody else took their uh, valuable time to uh, give us their opinions today and give us their knowledge. And I just want to thank everybody for the effort because um, this took a little bit to get together, and I'm very happy we all got together with a lot of good information. You have any? We have about 60 seconds. Any parting words?
2: Thank you, just for pulling this together, because that's, that's oh, something to you know, pull people together from different continents and get us
1: all lined up. Well, next time I won't screw up the time so bad. <laughs> <laughs> you I had to make three posts just to get it correct. <laughs> thank Do you. you, you job any, job any last so words? Yeah. Um,
4: no, I'm just you. very, very happy that um, I could join in on this Um I'm still learning about the hormone part. I'm so sort of stuck on the genes, studying them so much. I'm um, depending on you guys from my health care. Because, <laughs> um, you know, I mean, you can't treat, treat a SNP by, person by treating a SNP. You, you have to look at everything. And people really need to realize that. Like why when um, people call me and want to learn about the genes, that a lot of the times they ask me why I don't have anything on the side of the variant report. Because if you treat the SNP, you can hurt somebody. And That's right.
1: People like and everybody should remember that when they consult one of us, they basically consult all of us because we do talk to each other. Okay, none of us have an ego. None of us have any problem calling one another, and saying, "Look, you're better at this than I am. What do you think I should do?" Okay, and um, yeah, you can't get that everywhere. So, everybody, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I really appreciate um, all the attendance. Uh, we're going to be having some very great shows coming up. So stay tuned, and don't forget, if you're interested in the seminar, www.mabim.org, and don't forget about the holiday discount. Tell your friends, tell your doctors. Um, The video streaming is available so that you can watch the seminar from the comfort of your home. And uh, I think it's a great idea in January. So everybody, good night. Thank you so much for your time.
4: Good night. Good night.